Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic. Out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at rula.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. And I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist who has roved all the way to the Basque Country. What are you doing there, James? I hear there's a little bike race going on called the, the Tour de France that's starting here in northern Spain in the Basque Country. And I've been looking forward to the start for quite a long time and took the train down to Biarritz from Paris and then rented my car and drove across and just got here, really. Um, so building up for what will be my 34th Tour de France. Have you been to the Basque Country much before? Uh, I've been here for the San Sebastian race a couple of times. I've been here for a couple of different visits with the bike industry. Bilbao is a great town. I love walking around down here, going to the Guggenheim and walking on the river. So James and I are going to talk about this year's Tour de France, which starts on Saturday in the Basque Country. I did actually know that, James. We're going to talk a bit about the favourites, about the terrain especially. But we're also going to talk a bit more about our memories of the race. Just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to Rula and get 15% off the usual price by going to rula.cc slash subscribe and entering the code podcast15. And the new edition of Rouleau, the Tours de France edition, is out now, packed full of fascinating features, in-depth journalism, great interview by James with Tade Pogacar, um, me waxing lyrical about the Puy de Dome, and much, much more. But let's get on to this year's Tour de France, James. Who is going to win? <laughs> uh, well, if it's a one-word answer, uh, it would be Pogacar for me. Explain. Ah, it's not a one-word answer. <laughs> I've got a three-word answer, which is Pogacar or Vingegaard. You've been saying for some time that you think Pogacar will have recovered fine from his wrist breakage. I know you're a, you're a big fan of his racing style and you think he's going to win. I tend to agree with you, but I, I do think that the wrist injury does complicate things a little bit the recovery takes energy and time and it's it's suboptimal so that's why I think it's between the two of them but it is true that most people do see this as a two-horse race don't they they do 
And for good reason. These are, for the last two years, the two biggest talents in, in the tour. And they've just been going at it head to head. Whatever race they show up at, Vingegaard or Pogacar just sort of dominate the rest of the field. So we have all the makings of a really epic duel. On paper, that's what we're looking at. One of the really, one of the great uh, rivalries, I think, in, in modern cycling. And it's going to be exciting. But I just think that Pogacar has the edge and I'm going to perhaps be overconfident but that he's going to have recovered. But if you ask me who do I think is my gut favorite, it would be Pogacar. So Vingegaard beat Pogacar last year by two minutes, 43 seconds, um, which is quite a significant gap. That gap was a big one. But we talked about this a lot in the early parts of last year's tour James when Pogacar was riding very aggressively putting a lot of efforts out while Vingegaard was just tapping around as, as well as he could and not showing his cards I think that gap was not indicative of the physical gap between them it was more indicative of the way they rode their races so that being taken into mind do you think Vingegaard is stronger than Pogacar. Do you think Pogacar is stronger than Vingegaard in a, in a straight race without strategy tactics? I think pure tests of strength is why I lean towards Pogacar. He made one very bad mistake last year, and that cost him the race. And it was a blunder. And he admits it. You know, when we talked about it in our interview, he, he broke it down and he said, I knew right away I was in trouble. And, and thinking back, I should not have followed Roglic, who made the first attack in that mountain stage. But he's not a guy that likes to sit back and let the race get up the road. And he made a mistake. But I think he's smart enough that he's uh, learned from that. And also, this year's tour doesn't seem to have that unworldly mega summit finish that is going to be such a game changer. And perhaps the fact that he did uh, break this wrist, he's not going to maybe go in there firing all guns in that first week. I think he's going to have to reshape his approach to this year's race, and it could be a blessing in disguise. Yeah, it's actually a shame for him because I, I think that the parkour in the first week, in fact, all the way up to the Puy de Dome, I would say, is absolutely Pogacar favoured territory. I think he was making efforts last year when there wasn't really the terrain to make the difference on whereas this year you know the Basque punchy stages in the Basque country the Pyrenean stages are you know they're 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 hard but they're not the super tough mountain stages which again perfectly suits Pogacar and the Puy de Dome that kind of shortish effort is right right up his street so that's what makes me interested in this is talk just trying to work out how those two are going to work out the challenges and each other and the terrain um, what is also true, though, is they, they do both seem to be clear favourites. They've both got very strong teams. Are you at all worried about it becoming a bit too controlled by those two teams? That's true. But this is a very well-balanced race, I think. And there are a lot of crazy stages that go under the radar. There's a lot of people that don't have anything to lose either. That can play well into the hands of creating suspense. There's just always so many unknowns. There's there's potential uh, outsiders. Um, 
And there's some people that have been showing some, you know, we're showing some really good form in the races like the Criterium de Dauphiné, guys like Jai Hindley, who was coming here for the first time to do the race. Ben O'Connor was right, running very well at the Dauphiné. I think he's going to be back this year. He's not going to have to worry about negotiating cobbles and things like that. There are a lot of, a lot of great riders. This is the Tour de France. So, I'm, you know, I'm just excited to watch it. You know, what we don't have is a Tour de France of the 90s where we had some momentous time trial and a guy by the name of Miguel Indurain who just steamrolled everybody and it was game over. We're not going to have that. No, but I would point out to all our listeners that there is an interview with Miguel Indurain in the latest edition. <laughs> there of is. Thank you very much for that link, James. So yeah, let's let's talk about the other guys. As you say, you can, you can never assume at the Tour de France. All it takes is one crash or one rider to have mistimed their form or one bit of bad luck and the first days of the Tour de France are always chaotic we may it it's entirely feasible that what we expect you know today won't even last past the first couple of stages um so let's talk about the other riders who either threaten those first two or you know contest that third spot on the podium uh, you mentioned jai hindley he would be my personal choice that third place just because he when he won that giro I was I was so impressed with him. I know he didn't beat a very very deep field, but it was it was still a good field he beat, and it was a tough race, and he rode a really solid, consistent race. Was clearly the strongest on the crucial stages at the end, and he's also got quite a strong team. Bora, they're not one of the super teams with massive budgets, but they punch above their weight, and they're very very clever. They've started from small beginnings and built and built and built, and they just keep on getting better. And the only place to go after winning the Giro is winning the Tour de France. So, Jai Hindley is the guy I think I'm going to be watching with interest um, to see if he can take that third spot. Who else has caught your eye? Already mentioned uh, O'Connor. I think he's going very well. He was right. They were kind of right together most of Dauphiné. You know, all year long, I was thinking uh, David Godou was going to be right there. He rode consistently well in races like like Nice. I think he got third in Nice, you know. But he had a bad Dauphiné. But he was just coming off a heavy altitude camp, and, and he rode tremendously at the French National Championships this past weekend. I was there. So I think he's coming around, and I think he could he could be right there again. There's a lot of familiar faces that should be right there in the top five. I think Roman Bardet is going to be there again. Mike, Mikel Landa is starting in the Basque Country, so he's going to be a, a hometown favorite, and I think he's going to ride well in these first stages. And then there's this up-and-coming rider, uh, Matthias uh, uh, Skelmos from Trek, and he's got all the makings of having a great tour. I mean, he was, you know, podium at Flesh Wallon. That's a brutal steep climbs so he can handle those kinds of climbs like the Puy de Dome um, he hasn't been tested in the high high mountains but this year's tour doesn't have tons of that and the guy just did win the tour of Switzerland so I'll be really curious to see how he holds up there's a few other names to chuck into the mix as well there's Enrique Mass, who has been three times second in the Vuelta seems to scrape around fifth sixth place in the Tour de France and just yeah, it's, it's hard to know what to think about Enric Mass. When he popped up out of nowhere and came second in the Vuelta when he was still riding for Quick Step, several years ago now, I thought, well, this is a rider with real, real potential. And he still hasn't topped that and seems to kind of, he, he's not suffering from an excess of boldness, Enric Mass, no. I don't think. I think he, he tends to wait to see what's, what happens. Always a bit inconsistent, but, you know, will be there or thereabouts in most of the mountain stages. There's also the question of Ineos Grenadiers, who had third in Garen Thomas last year, 
defeated narrowly at the Giro with Geraint Thomas uh, this year. And I guess, is Bernal a leader there? They've got Tom Pidcock in the team. He's won at Alpe d'Huez last year, but he's not strung three weeks of stage racing together as yet. But maybe that's a good strategy for Ineos to see what he can do and see what Bernal can do. I actually prefer Ineos when they don't have an overwhelming favourite. They race brilliantly. As we saw when Teo Gogenhardt won the Giro, we almost saw that here with uh, you know Garrett in the Giro again. They know they don't have the the heavy pre-race favorite, and and they've done a good job in in, the re- in recent years of playing with their numbers and launching guys and seeing what comes up. And we'll see where it goes. It's going to be interesting. But for what it's worth, Bernal rode well at Dauphiné, and he is coming up. So you know he could find his legs. We'll just have to see. I'm just gently disagree with you on Ineos chucking guys up the road because in last year's tour I think they had three or four riders in the top 15 or so and that is numbers they were faced with two clearly stronger guys they were the only team with the numbers and the potential to lob a grenade into the GC and instead Geraint Thomas just rode around third place which is it's fine that's not a criticism that is the best possible result they could get in riding that way. But they they were not prepared, after all their talk of riding it aggressively and excitingly, they were not prepared to risk third place for a possible but improbable first. And I think you know, the same at the, at the Giro this year, Geraint Thomas's assets are that he has got incredible tenacity and strength and resilience and endurance and that's how he rode his best race and he just got found out a bit at the end but Pidcock on the other hand does have more aggressive tendencies he's another year older I believe he wants to have a look at targeting the GC in Grand Tours this would be a good tour for him to see what he can do without the pressure of being an outright favourite absolutely and he's the kind of rider who is going to shine in this opening week I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the yellow jersey at some point in the race. He's definitely that kind of rider, like, you know, not unlike, say, Philippe. These punchy opening stages are going to be really interesting, and there's just going to be a lot of opportunities for, for guys like Pidcock or Philippe to also play their hand. Just to finish off with the GC contenders, I'm just going to lob a few more names into the mix for you, James, and give us a quick, very quick fire, um, where you think they're going to come, how you think they're going to do, and why. So... Adam Yates. He has been riding well. He's got a strong team. He rode brilliantly uh, at the Dauphiné, got second. So he's got the legs. And UAE is one of those teams that brings out the best in riders, you got to say. When they go to the UAE, they, you know, there's some real positive things happening there. And, you know, when you got a guy like Pogachar that's taking people up, it coalesces the whole team and they ride really well. Yates, obviously, it's going to depend on Pogachar. If uh, what what his options are there, but if there's any doubt with Pogachar, they might launch Yates, surprise people. Use Yates like uh, like uh, Jumbo used um, Roglic, you know, in, into the mid midway through the tour last year. Launch him? Well, can Vingegaard just let Yates ride up the road? No. And from one Yates to another, Simon Yates. I mean, he has had the best Grand Tour results, really, but it's. Uh, of the two brothers, but had some uh, misfortune here um, in his build-up. So we'll just have to see where his legs come. But he's going to have freedoms, which is means a lot. I was looking at his results as well, actually. I mean, he, he's been a pro for 10 seasons now, and 
in all that time, he's had one seventh place in the Tour de France, and and that's his only kind of really high result in the Tour. Also, he's had four DNFs out of the last five Grand Tours he's ridden, and uh, you know, bad luck, injuries, illness. Just seems like, you know, he he won his Vuelta, but even a Tour podium might be optimistic for him. But you know, you you never know. A um, couple more names: uh, Richard Carapaz, former Giro winner, has been on the podium at the Tour de France, now running for EF. But uh, what do you think about his chances? Well, I thought that uh, I thought that he was going to be real podium potential, but he was very eclectic, shall we say, inconsistent is probably a better word. At the Dauphiné, um, he w- was one of the first guys to 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 launch the the attacks on the first climbs, and then just totally folded. So we're going to have to to see where that goes. But I was expecting a better performance out of him at the Dauphiné. But it's not just about the yellow jersey competition, is it, James? It's several other stories bubbling along with this Tour de France. And the biggest one, I think, from a news point of view, is just whether Mark Cavendish can get that 35th Tour stage win. He's not had a stellar year. On the other hand, he is Mark Cavendish, and we never write him off. You can never write off a big champion like Mark. And he just reminded us of that at the last stage of the Giro, which was one of, I think... One of his most brilliant victories because, you know, I think there people were like, ah, well, he's, you know, three weeks of the, there's, the race is over and he hasn't shown it yet. Why would he be the guy to win the last stage in Giro? And then he made it look so easy. It was amazing. Um, so he's coming in here. There are quite a few stages. We, we, you know, we think, we look, look at the state, this race as being, you know, brutally hard because we start with climbing right from the get go. But we have five, six, Classic sprint stages out there too, you know. So there's going to be plenty of opportunities for these guys, and it's going to be interesting to see. And 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 Cab only needs one. Yeah, my opinion on Mark Cavendish is I, I I believe he can win a stage because of course, as you say, he 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 just knows how to do it, and he's he's clearly not got bad form, you know, from from that Giro stage. The first sprints in the Tour are always an utter utter madhouse. They're dangerous. There's often a crash there were often multiple crashes if i were him which obviously i'm not and if i were uh <laughs> he probably wouldn't have won so many bike races but i think that what cavendish is good at doing is managing his effort for a grand tour and he knows how to manage the mountain stages and he knows how to keep his form i would say those couple of early sprint stages before the pyrenees i think stages f- three and four um don't get involved just sit back, watch, see how it's going, but mainly don't get involved. Get through the Pyrenees, and then there's those couple of stages to Bordeaux and uh, Limoges. Start getting involved then, because there are several sprint stages. The other sprinters will be starting to get more tired as they've been through the mountains, and then he can target stage. I know he won't think like this, and I know he'll start trying to win from the beginning, like a, you know, as is his personality and what's given him a lot of success. But that's how I see his potential this tour. I agree with a lot of that. Mark's a historian of the sport. This year's tour, just, you know, following what you just said, which was, I think, a very good analysis. If he kind of observes things in the first couple of sprint stages, what do you have coming around the corner? Bordeaux. And Bordeaux was, for generations, the prime sprint stage. Mark Cavendish knows this. He knows what it means to win in Bordeaux, and he's a sentimental guy. I think he's got that one down on his bucket list. Um, and 
don't be surprised. It comes right about after, you know, right perfectly in timing with your Mark Cavendish uh, crescendo. Uh, let you know a couple, a couple not the first Christmas stages, but the third or fourth. Let's wait for uh, Bordeaux and and have a, a bottle of uh, wine on on tap and ready to celebrate. Yeah, I would like to think that Mark Cavendish would have won a lot more races if he'd listened more to me. Um, who else? Who else is going to win sprint stages, James? It's a pretty good uh, list of of sprinters. What we have seen is, you know, it's there's not that many guys that um, dominate. We're not seeing these sprinters winning three, four, or five stages anymore. So I'll be kind of curious uh, to see what happens there. We've got obviously Wout Van Aert. Uh, or his teammate Christoph Laporte. Uh, we've got Rowan uh, Vegan. We've got uh, Jakobsen. We've got you know the list is long. There's some some guys we haven't seen before. Um, you know and, you know uh, Jesper Philipsen. He's been cons- he is barely going to a race yet that he hasn't won a stage in this year. And and Mads Pedersen is always right there. So I'm going to be really curious to see how Biniam uh, Germain does. I was hoping for more out of him in the spring, but he had really bad luck with some crashes and stuff. He had such a great year last year. He can get over climbs. He can go to three weeks. Um, he's a tough sprinter. He can place himself, play off of others. I think he's going to be in the mix daily. We were having a chat before we started recording, and you, you suggested that for Jumbo Visma, if they're at all interested in the green jersey this year, after Wout van Aert won it by just hundreds of points last year, that Christophe Laporte would be more their option. Um, and there are specific reasons for that. Yeah, well, I was digging around a little bit. As you know, I play Velo games with a group of friends from from years past, and and we, and we take our Velo games very seriously. I must say, I was analyzing the the different riders, and I go into you know I go into the results columns and see what these guys have been doing just to check up and and really uh, try to figure out who could potentially be coming around. And I came across this little interesting tidbit that, um, you know, Laporte might actually be their green jersey hope. Uh, he had a tremendous Dauphiné winning uh, the two, two out of the first three stages. He's strong, he's fast, he's proven. And Woot Van Aert apparently is not really going to focus on that green jersey because he wants to save himself a world. And he said last year, I was not even human after the tour, I was so wasted going for everything day in and day out. I also do not feel human at the end of the Tour de France. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back to talk about the route. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. The Tours de France are here. They're the greatest races in the world and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm not actually going out for much of the tours this year, so I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage from start to finish, ad-free. And for those days where life gets in the way of a cycling fan's real priorities, I can catch up at any time, because there are full replays of both races on demand. For the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlight packages. You can go for long, short, or just the final kilometres. And as a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage. And this feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about. You can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action, but also convey the fun and passion of the tours. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show. And this airs throughout the season. If that's not enough, you can get all the pre-race information you need with previews, route maps, profiles and start lists all available on the GCN app. 
With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, with coverage of all the biggest races from the road, cyclocross, track and MTB seasons. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. We're back with our conversations. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm with James Start. We're going to be talking about the Tour de France route. And what we thought probably the best way of doing it, rather than go through it stage by stage by stage by stage, you know, five minutes a stage, we're easily up to 100 minutes. We've divided it into phases of the, the race. There's all kind of macro phases in this year's tour. So phase one, James, the Basque country up to and including stage four to Nogaro. Um, so this Basque country, Grand Depart, it's kind of a punchy, hilly full of traps, um, the fans are going to be crazy, the atmosphere is going to be brilliant, I hope the weather's going to be nice. What's your angle on these first four stages? It's going to be a, a real celebration of cycling here in the Basque Country. I mean, Tade Pogacar, I asked him when I uh, when I interviewed him for the Ruler, I said, what stage are you most excited about or most looking forward to? And he said, stage one. It's going to be amazing with the fans and all. It's just going to be a real, a real communion. It's going to be tricky. It's all up and down, littered with little punchy climbs. So yeah, the first two stages especially, very punchy. These are not going to be bunch sprints, especially stage two. You know, the Heith Cabell climb's been, you know, it's been a major part of the San Sebastian Classic. It won't be a GC climb, but at the same time, you can quite easily see 20, 30 riders being away on that. And it'll be an early indicator of who is sharp, won't it? Any splits over that climb, we'll be watching very, very carefully. And then to, to round off the Basque stages and the stage in the southwest of France, there are two flatter stages. The next phase, a very, very short one, James, because it's uh, I've just lumped the Pyrenees into one phase. And there, there's a, there are two Pyrenees in stages. There's one to, from Pau to La Runes, which crosses the first all-category climb of the Tour, the Col de Soudé. The run-in's a bit more complicated. It's got the Col de Marie Blanc, which is only first category, but it's very, very steep. And it's where, I think, Pogacar, Bernal, Roglic and... Hmm... Somebody else broke away. Yeah, it's hard enough to for it to be a GC climb. That's a hard stage. And I think the stage six is harder. It crosses the Col d'Aspin, but also crosses the Col du Tourmalet. And uh, it's got the final climb up to La Cambasque above Cotteret, first summit finish of the race. So how do you view these two stages? Um, they're obviously GC days because there are big mountains involved, but quite early in the race, or is it a good time for riders to start making statements? Well, um, considering that we agree that, that Pogacar is not going to try to win everything in sight in the first uh, week here, this could be a more traditional uh, opening mountain stages where the favorites kind of look at each other. Maybe we'll see Vingard and his team trying to blow it open and trying to corner Pogacar early, saying, hey, there's no way you could be in, in as good a shape as you were at this point last year. Let's try to you know catch you out here. The next phase of the race is a rather large one. I've called it the empty France phase. Of the race, and it's one of our pet obsessions with you know, the, the the parts of France that lie between the cities and away from the coastlines. Um, and it takes us all the way from Mont de Marsan, 
back down uh, in the southwest of France, all the way via the Puy de Dôme to Bourg-en-Bresse. So we incorporate you know, the crossing of the Land, the Massif Central, and to the very northern edge of the Rhône Valley. It's quite a large part of the tour, this. There's a lot in it. I've just realised we've got five phases rather than four, but this is this is the third phase. First two stages to Bordeaux and Limoges look fairly... Un- Bordeaux looks flat. I mean, it's uncomplicated. That's the sprint stage. Limoges, bit lumpier, but still, I don't think it's the kind of stage that will catch out any of the sprinters. So I see those two stages being probably bunch sprints. But then we have um, the long-awaited return on Sunday the 9th of July, first time since 1988 of the Puy de Dôme. This mountain has been looming over our stage previews and our thoughts about this year's Tour de France, hasn't it? It has. You and I went down and did a great road trip down there for the uh, the current issue of Rouleur. It was a special time to be down there. The weather was sort of... How would you have described the weather down there? <laughs> it's quite British, actually. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It was just... A splash of sun here, fog there, dash of rain. It was crazy. And going up that climb, you know, it's it was suddenly very quiet and there's no cars or bikes or anything. It's just this, you know, it's, you're just alone up there. And it was a very special moment for me. I don't know what it was like for you going up there. It's an eerie, kind of characterful climb that's got a ton of charisma and it's got a unique shape and... It's also going to be an exciting bike race because it's the engineering on the climb means that it spirals around, built on an old railway track. Because of that, it doesn't have any bends. It's got no hairpins. It's got no mitigation of the gradient. It's a five-kilometre steep ramp test with no respite. And that's why I said earlier on that it's perfect for Pogacar because it's that kind of intense 20-minute effort that he excels at. So... Yeah, the remainder of the stage is not that hard, so that there's going to be a lot of riders going into the bottom of that climb, but that's going to put a punctuation point on the end of that first half of the race. After the rest day, it goes to Issoir in a very, very archetypally massive central day, which covers yeah, no big climbs, but there are one, two, three, four, five categorised climbs and probably several dozen uncategorised climbs. Um, on on that stage, and that's a very very grippy, tough day in the Massif Central, uh, followed by a sprint, st- a likely sprint stage to Moulin, which is where I have particular memories of Moulin, James, because it's where I spent my year as an assistant anglais at a lycée as part of my French degree, and I'm really really looking forward to the tour going back to Moulin. I can guarantee that there is no cycling journalist in the entire tour press back who is more excited about the Moulin stage, which otherwise does look like one of the most <laughs> boring and kind of least eventful stages of the whole race. We never know, the wind the wind might blow. Yes, James. One of the things that we love about these these races through the, the heart of central France is this part of the country is sort of lost in time. And when you're going through these stages, you feel kind of like it's the tour of old. It's really wonderful uh, to be to be in in that part of the country, I think. Because the bicycle racing just brings so much life to that part of the world. It's, you know, daily life there is, dare I say, a bit drab. It's pretty monotone. Uh, the weather's not great. Um, it's You're deep in the heart of the country. I mean, it's, it's hill land, you know. They're, even when they say flat, there's no such thing as a flat road in this part of the country. And it's very rustic. And all of a sudden, 
the tour comes and it's this big party and it's festive and and you know with a little luck we even get some sunshine and it's it's it's, it's always pretty, you know kind of heartwarming when uh, when we go through these parts of, of 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 the country we share our 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 love of this part of the country you know everybody knows the alps are going to be great everybody knows the pyrenees are going to be great and then we come here and it's kind of sleepy and whatever and yet it's still pretty great sleepy is an apt description of moulin yeah you know, moulin is the last uh, departmental capital never to have featured in the Tour de France route and it's featuring for the first time this year. I've got nothing but happy memories of my, my time in Moulin. It's a, a, a town that's got, if you know where to look, it has got a ton of character, but yeah, it is, it's a small sleepy town lost in the middle of France. And for one day this summer, it is going to be the centre of the cycling universe. And I can't wait. So that's, that's the stage of Moulin, a likely sprint, but you never know with the tour. Um, and then um, I think I said earlier on, the, the, this phase of the tour ends with uh, Bourg-en-Bresse. I meant Belleville on Beaujolais. We get back into the hills for the final part of this crossing of empty France with a very, very complicated hilly stage from Rouen to Belleville on Beaujolais. And you probably know Beaujolais well, James. It's hilly. The climbs are actually quite serious in this, this corner of France. They're not very well known, but there are two Cat 2s on the run into Belleville, and it's not going to be an easy stage, this one. No, we did a similar stage in the Dauphiné this year. It's all up and down. The winds can be really strong. Surprises can happen anywhere here. Anytime we get near the Beaujolais grapevines, it's just stunning in its, in its beauty. I don't think many British tourists go to Beaujolais. Um, I know a lot of the belly Beaujolais wine goes goes to Britain a lot, but it, you know that's, that's not the good stuff. Um, I spent some time in Beaujolais, absolutely stunningly beautiful if if i had to compare it to somewhere i'd, I'd say it's it's got an air a bit of an air of tuscany it's got those rolling hills and vineyards it's not mountainous but it's not flat and it's not that kind of lumpy uh, terrain that you're talking about and it's a part of the country that doesn't have many big cities but it is full of character beautiful countryside sleepy towns and absolutely delicious wine if you know the right ones to drink absolutely and it's easy to discount the Beaujolais because of the Beaujolais Nouveau which is totally discountable um, but there are some great wines out there yeah so that that concludes phase th- I can't remember what we're up to now we're up to phase three aren't we so phase four is basically the the interesting bit the Jura and the Alps first summit finish of this part of the race is at the Col du Grand Colombier which is just Really, really hard and really, really beautiful. It absolutely is. I remember Yvon Maddio once, uh, which is uh, Mark Maddio's brother, who was a pretty good rider himself. I asked him once years ago, I said, what's the hardest climb you know of? And and he said, you know, there's this climb. We don't go up it very much. Uh, not the Colombier, which is uh, not so far from NC, but this thing called the Grand Colombier. And we started going up it about 10 years ago. And... You know, it's not that hot, but it's, it just comes comes out of sea level and it's 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 pretty brutal. It's also, you know, it's one of those climbs that we we find in the middle of the second week when you're really not thinking the tours in the Alps or the Pyrenees, and yet the modern Tour de France has done an amazing job of flushing out some pretty hard climbs elsewhere in the country, and, and this is one of them. No rest for the wicked, because the next day to Morz- from Annemasse to Morzine, it's got three first category climbs and an all category climb uh, including the Col de la Ramaz which is the penultimate climb and the Col de Jouplan which it's just one of those iconic tough climbs isn't it and made all the more complicated by the fact that you get to the top and then you've got two kilometres 
of flattish, draggish roads into the wind at the top. Absolutely. And then a, re- and then a really dangerous descent to Morzine. It wasn't one that we went up all the time, but it was one that was, yeah, it was surprisingly hard just for the reasons you said. That last two kilometers, you think you're over it and it's very exposed. We're not really even in the Alps yet. We're just sort of kissing them at this point. But, um, you know, with the Grand Colombier and and, and the Juplan, both of those are very hard climbs back to back. Yeah. And then there's a third consecutive very hard day right into the Alps this time. Um, several very hard climbs, the four clouds, the Croix-Fruy, and then a summit finish at Saint-Gervais, which we saw a few years back, which I think Romain Bardet won at, at uh, Saint-Gervais, maybe 2017. This stage looks really, really complicated, doesn't it? It's the kind of stage where chasing's going to be hard because it's relentless climbing and descending, and some climbs are long, some are short, then there'll be a long climb and a short descent. Another little punchy climb, long descent, plateau, downhill, uphill. Profile of this stage is all over the place. And that takes up to the rest day, um, which is followed immediately. Um, we're still in the Alps by the only time trial of the tour from Passy to Comblou, which it's got a second category climb um, included in it. So it's not quite a mountain time trial, is it? But it's it's definitely not purely for the rulers. You look on paper... It doesn't look like that steep or anything, but then you see that this little second category climb is called the, the Côte de Domancy. This was the climb that the, uh, I believe it was the 1980 World Championships were held on uh, when Bernard Hinault uh, soloed to victory and just used that climb to destroy his competition lap in and lap out. And so it's got a very special place in the heart of, of French cycling fans. You're going to have to get up that climb well. But by, by this point in the race, you know, it's also starting to become a, a race of reserves, a race of fatigue. So even a climber who might not be a great time trial rider, you know, if he can make the difference on that climb, he can pop a really great time trial. It's, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting. The final alpine stage of this phase of the race, uh, Saint-Gervais to Courchevel. And I, I would say this is the key stage of the race. It's the, the toughest stage. It's got the Col des Saisies, which is first category, the Cormier de Roseland, which is very, very long, also first category, very, very beautiful climb. Um, second category, Côte de Longuefoy, and then the climb to Courchevel and the Col de la Loz, which appeared for the first time in 2020, and I, I loved it. I thought it's it the most amazing, varied, hard, beautiful climb that fully deserved its place on the Tour de France. They're going up and over it and then down to Courchevel again. Just looks like such a tough stage, this. Absolutely. And as you as you mentioned, um, yeah, we go over the Cormier de Rousseland, which is one of my top three favorite climbs in, in France, just for the sheer beauty. I mean, it's we go over this mountain lake. It's just exquisite. Um, and then, yeah, that Col de la Loz. I mean, when we when it did here in 2020, you know, Roglic got some time back on, on Pogacar. And we thought, you know, some of us thought, well, looks like Pog- Roglic has got this rap. Finally cracked his biggest threat. Turned out not to be the case. But, um, it, you know, it, it happened. And I believe it was the first time we ever went up this climb. So it was, you know, one of the many new climbs that the Tour has found, uh, which is exciting. Yeah, that's the end of that phase of the race. The last phase is, I've imagined she called it the last bit. Um, it's basically, there's a couple of flattish stages. One to Bourg-en-Bresse, which is famous for its chicken. James, I don't know if you knew that. And uh, a stage to Pol- 
we're at a stage to Poligny, which is a bit more lumpy and what we'd probably call, um, if we're being lazy cycling journalists, called a day for the break. But that one looks pretty rolling and tough and no sprinters team's going to be able to control that one. But those two days are just a couple of days to get through before the final GC day of the race, which is the day in the Vosges to Markstein, which again, None of the climbs are particularly high or particularly long, but this looks very, very tough, doesn't it? Yeah, this uh, this could be the sleeper of, of the tour for sure. If somebody's got the legs and if a, te- a team has to have the legs, then this could be a really very dangerous stage. It might be one of those stages though, where somebody's going to have to be willing to lose to win. We've got a generation of cyclists who are willing to just throw it all to the wind. And then we've got one final stage, the last stage to Paris, your home city, James. Uh, What what are your feelings on the tour finishing in Paris? Because I know some people are down on the, in inverted commas, ceremonial final stage. Where do you sit on this? Oh, well, I love it because I'm coming home. For me as a photographer, it's it's a very busy day. And yet, you know, it's a time to just sit back and kind of rejoice and savor the three weeks that we've just had. The riders are, are doing that for sure. And, um, you know, there's always a sense of bringing it home, bring it full circle. The race is over. The guys know what place they're going to get. They're not going to turn the tables on, on the stage here. I love the last stage into Paris. And I think it's, you know, what other sporting event can close the, the greatest street in the greatest city in the world? Um, I, th- I think it's the, the, the best backdrop for the finale of the tour. We're going to take another little break now and then we're going to come back. And James and I are going to talk through a few of our memories of covering the tour in, in the past. There's great news for the Rouleau Conversations podcast. Our sponsor for this episode is Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab have developed an exciting range of high-performance skincare products which combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients. A leading clinical trial found that 9 out of 10 men experienced healthier and visibly improved skin after using Caldera Lab products. And we've got an exclusive offer coming up for 20% off Caldera Lab's best products. So, like most cyclists, I've spent a lot of time outdoors. Cycling keeps me young inside and very happy. But all that sun and wind does contribute to the ageing process of my skin. The laughter lines are a little more visible than they were 5 or 10 years ago. However, Caldera Lab sent me their regimen bundle and I can already see the beneficial effect that it's having. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser that refreshes my skin. The base layer is a nutrient-dense moisturiser which is quickly absorbed and just makes my face feel less dry. The Good is a night cream that reduces visibility of wrinkles and fine lines and I also look and feel a lot less tired because the Icon Rejuvenating Eye Serum has taken down those dark circles and the puffiness around my eyes. Caldera Labs are also committed to transparency, sustainability and excellence and they are on a mission to make men's skincare better. They use clean ingredients, they are a certified B Corporation and a member of 1% for the planet, so they're helping the world as well as the confidence of their users. Upgrade your skin and your confidence with Caldera Lab. Ruler Conversations listeners can get 20% off at calderalab.com with our code RULER, and that's C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A-B.com. Go to calderalab.com slash ruler and that's 20% off. Unlock your youthful glow and be ready for summer with Caldera Lab. 
This is Reload Conversations. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm with James Start. We're going to talk about a few of our Tour de France memories. Um, James, you've been covering the Tour de France for not quite as long as I've been alive, but quite a few years. Can you remember your first day on the tour? My very first day on the tour, I was a student in Paris learning French. I came over for a summer uh, with New York University. I didn't know anything about bike racing. And uh, my student colleagues said, uh, you know, hey, we're going to go down to see the finish of the Tour de France uh, tomorrow morning. You want to join us? And I said, sure. You know, I mean, I heard about it and I always loved riding bikes. I heard kind of about this race, but I didn't really know much about it. And I actually I was vaguely aware of it because I remember walking down the Rue de Rennes around Montparnasse where I was uh, living. And there was like this this uh, window of television screens. And I was saw the, the legs of this guy just powering up the climb, some climb, maybe up to us with the fans screaming. And I was like, wow, okay, that, there is something to this bike race, huh? So I went there and we were thinking, oh, this is going to be like a rock and roll show. You, know, you got to get there early. And we were there like eight in the morning. And, and about the only other people stupid enough to do that were like drunk Dutch guys who were having beers at eight in the morning on the Champs-Élysées. Um, but we were just as stupid. Which year was that that you went to see the tour? So it was, uh, it was at 83, so it was Finion's first tour. Yeah, and so I got to see them race up and down the Champs-Élysées and that hasn't changed so much. It's, it was still just jam-packed people six deep all the way up and down. It was spectacular, just spectacular. And then um, it was about a few years later, 1990, I got my first chance to actually cover the race in any way, shape, or form. So I got to see uh, Le Mans' final victory. Uh, And that was pretty special for me as an American. Yeah, I think my my first day seeing the Tour de France live was in 1989, a mountain time trial from Gap to Orsier-Merlette. I was holidaying in the Ardèche region and persuaded my mum to go and drive drive us across camp on the mountainside uh, with a buddy of mine. Mum slept in the car and watched the mountain time trial the next day. I'd been a cycling fan for a few years by that point. I had seen the milk race pass into Exeter, but this was a very different proposition. I remember seeing, as we drove through Gap, the, the day before when the stage actually finished in Gap, obviously... Gap is renowned amongst cycling journalists for being a traffic jam. There is one road in and one road out and there is no way around. And so it got stuck in the traffic jam. And I think it was Pascal Poisson, the rider for, I think he rode for Toshiba. Um, I just saw a rider go past and I just remember being struck by the veins in his legs and how skinny he was. And like I was struck by this kind of colourful real world godlike presence of a professional cyclist after a few years following the sport and they went went up camped on the mountainside and watched riders come past one at a time like from the very last rider on the gc all the way through to the top 10 cheered for robert miller cheered for sean kelly Stephen rooks um final couple coming through i think Fignon was the last three because he was in the yellow jersey uh, at that point it was the first time i'd ever seen the mountains first time i'd ever seen the tour de france got very very fond memories of that day and when when the tour has gone back to gap uh, i've always been stuck in the traffic jam thinking i was like i've barely progressed since i was 16 year old here i am again in a traffic gap jam in gap but that was that was my first memory of the tour i really have come to love the tours that are unpredictable and where there's suspense and it was before my time but the you know the stephen roach uh, delgado one was just tremendous 
Greg's victory, the eight-second victory over Fignon was, you know, huge. But in more recent years, you know, and then I came in, like, really uh, on the, right at the end of Greg's era and at the beginning of, of Enderin, and those were very predictable. And then we got into the, you know, late 2000s. There was, there was 2008, after Armstrong, uh, you know, we had some very surprising tours with, say, Carlos Sastri, and then there was winning in 2008. And then there was the one I really loved, which was uh, 2011 when Cadell won. Thomas Folkler had the jersey for, what, 10 days uh, and finally, finally cracked on the last mountain stage. You know, there, but there was so much suspense. And and Cadell was kind of racing on the back foot. Um, the Schlecks, you know, were putting it to him. And he had to really go out and take it to him uh, with the finish up on, I believe it was the finish up on the Galibier, that the historic finish to kind of, bring it back. And he did it just brilliantly. And I, I just thought that was a great one. I love that tour. As a fan, uh, nothing will ever surpass 1989. I, th- I think that one is so firmly cemented in my kind of memories of being a teenager, of straddling that line between being a boy and being a man and kind of growing up and becoming a bit more independent. You know, I'd finished my GCSEs. I was going on to going on to studying my A-levels. I was kind of discovering my life path a bit. And that was all wrapped up in following cycling and being at the Tour de France that year. And that year being a just incredible battle with so many stories that there was the... Fignon was on a bit of a comeback. Le Monde was definitely on a comeback. Uh, Delgado was just doing crazy things. It was a good tour for the Anglophone riders, which back then was quite important for me. It was It was very much a foreign sport to me. And... Yeah, seeing Stephen Roach winning and having Robert Miller winning stages and being himself on form again in 1989 uh, for the first time in a few seasons um, and also Le Monde being involved in you know that it all kind of coalesced into a magical period and then the race itself was really exciting insofar as not only did it have suspense I mean you know the Giro we just saw had a lot of suspense but there wasn't a lot of action this was a tour that had suspense and action. The race swung back between Fignon and Le Mans so many times. Their good days and bad days exactly coincided. Like Le Mans would have a good day, Fignon would have a bad day. Le Mans would have a bad day, Fignon would have a good day. And it just swung back and forth, topped off by that absolutely incredible time trial into Paris. And I can't see, James, that that combination of circumstances my own life path and the race itself will ever be surpassed. It was that swinging back and forth that really stood out um, between these two. And let's not forget, I mean, it had this uncanny start where uh, Delgado missed his start. He was the defending champion and he showed up, what, five minutes late for the start. So that meant he had to just go off the Richter scale on the attacks at every opportunity, and he did. So it was this topsy-turvy thing. I mean... If you look at the 2020 tour with the final time trial or on the penultimate stage where, you know, Pogachar just raged into the victory, was brilliant. But we didn't have for three weeks the back and forth that, of the jersey going between these guys. And that would be the, that's the one difference. Yeah, tours are funny things, aren't they? Because it's very hard to judge at the time. Or during the race, whether it's a good one or not, because you, you do not know till the end. As you said, with 2020, I found that tour fairly flat. I felt that 
Roglic was riding defensively, he was the strongest rider in the race, had the strongest team, and they rode it in the way that they had to in order to win. And suddenly, all those stages which I found a bit kind of meh, were cast in an entirely different light by the fact of that penultimate day time trial. And I often think that you don't decide on the last day or immediately after the end of the race whether they're good or not. You can make a decision then, but you can change your opinion of a tour over the, the weeks, the months and the years that follow it. But at the time, I didn't enjoy 2020 much, apart from the end. But have, having the knowledge of that penultimate day time trial definitely elevates it. And last year's tour, which for me was very much a tour of two halves. The first half was scintillating all the way up to the Col and maybe Alpe d'Huez where it had been Pogacar just attacking and attacking and attacking and attacking and trying to take time and being exciting and aggressive and then Vingegaard and Jumbo Visma doing that. The attacks on the Galibier en route to the Col de Granon, which I thought was you know, the most exciting GC stage for many, many, many years. And then after that, the shape of the race was already set and the second half of the race kind of for me petered out a bit but that's the way tours are isn't it you can't just put them in the exciting box or the not exciting box there's a lot of context a lot of development and you know like a bottle of wine they taste differently from year to year depending on when you open them what the stories that have really resonated with you the ones that you feel you've had that front row seat for that really but you feel have really been compelling beyond the racing um you know into the personalities and the news stories I have one memory etched in my my mind of the stage up to Deux Alpes in 1998 when Marco Pantani, you know, went on a long solo attack over the Galibier into the valley, put Jan Ulrich in a hole, chasing madly, and he lost the jersey dead. And Ulrich was the defending champion. We thought Ulrich was going to be the next Eddie Merckx. And... It was a brutal day. It started in Grenoble. It rained the whole time up the, I think it was the Quad Fair, and I can't even remember all the climbs. And then all of a sudden, Pantani just goes wild. And he solos down this long valley and then up to Duzalp. And I was on a motor that day, and it was cold, and it was wet. It was brutal. I mean, I remember coming over the Galibier and I was behind the favorites and we were passing him on the descent and we passed Ulrich and you could, I could tell he was in trouble and he didn't know what to do with his rain jacket and he was panicking a little bit and Pantani had just hit the foot of the Duzalp when we got there and we passed him and I got in position to start taking pictures and I dropped back on the motorbike but by that point my cameras had taken in so much rain like the flash wasn't working it was like I was only firing about one every five shots and I've got like one shot of him there that is really memorable to me. That's all I could come up with because it was just so emotionally packed. And, and you know, I got off the bike in, in the press room. We were just in this tent up there. And yeah, people said, you look blue from the cold. And yet I had experienced history. Also, let's not forget, these are, these, these are tours that were so much more predictable where the race would only happen on the last climb. And Pautani came by and he was the first rider in years who had the courage and the imagination and the strength to go on the attack early. Of course, you're an American journalist, you know, through the Armstrong years as well. What's your perspective on those years these days? Well, I have a lot of perspectives on that. I knew Lance very well at a certain point during his cancer and all. And then once he won that first tour, it became a, a whole machine around him, very different uh, period. But that was sort of a return 
to the Indian years. I mean, he was just so dominant and his team was so dominant that there wasn't that much suspense. Save 2003, if Lance had lost at least one of those tours, a little bit of vulnerability in that period would have been, would have, I think, bode well. He was so dominant and he, he just dominated that generation. Obviously, we can look back at those performances with all kinds of different glasses with different filters on them and, and see what we want to see. But it was just such a dominant rider. But as I said from the very beginning, those kinds of tours are not the kinds of tours that I come away with that resonate in my mind. Yeah, it's funny actually, because I, I, I started in cycling journalism in 2002, towards the end of the Armstrong years, and I didn't particularly like Armstrong and I thought he was on drugs. I just wanted to get his career out of the way um, so I could crack on. And I did feel like I kind of got to grips with the tour much more from 2006 onwards. And I only went out for a few days in those early tours with Armstrong was winning and then started covering the tour in much longer stints from 2006. I've got kind of fond but weird memories of those tours from 2006 to 2008, nine, which were... Yeah, post Armstrong years. I mean, it's when basically the the sport started to pull its finger out a bit more and sort out the doping issue. But I felt like I was right in the middle of that. That was in the middle of moves and steps starting to be taken. Some riders and teams, you know, still in denial about this and still doing what they'd always done. So, you know, huge, huge stories going on. There was there was Puerto in two thousand six, two thousand seven. I think there was the Rasmussen year. And I remember being at the two thousand seven tour in one of the scrums around Michael Rasmussen before he got pulled out of the race by his team. And just remember thinking it was kind of from a journalistic, purely objective point of view, it was exhilarating and exciting to be in the middle of that story because it felt like the sport was finally changing from 06 through 07 to 08. Those those three tours, they weren't the greatest tours in terms of the racing action. I can barely remember what happened in some of them, but I did feel like changes happened in those three tours and I was kind of interested to be in the middle of it. What are your favourite favorite regions of France to cover the Tour de France? Well, could there be anything better than the Diagonal de Vide <laughs> that we love so much in the Lost Centre? No, uh, I certainly have towns that I love. And for instance, I don't particularly love the Pyrenees, but I love Po. Every time I, I, the tour is presented, I kind of look and calculate how many days can I stay in Poe. It's just a wonderful town to host the tour. It's just big enough to have all of the teams at hotels around town. And we often have a rest day there. So you see the guys riding on the rest day through town, maybe on a coffee ride. They have restaurants that open late at night. So when you finally get off the mountain and get down to your hotel, you can have some food. It's a hot summer night. You can eat outside. I have so many great memories uh, of Poe. And the year I... Re- Tire, I think I'm going to look where the race goes to Poe and finish it in, in Poe. And for those who missed that, I'll still be there in Paris to, to greet them. And then there's some, you know, a few other towns along the way that I, that I, that I love. Like, you know, Morzine is always a, a nice town. We're going there this year. And when we have a rest day there, it's always wonderful. Um, you know, up in the mountains, but not too high. I have my favorite climbs like the Cormier de Roslon that I just, I love. Such a potpourri of memories and images and and a lot of times I'm just riding down the road and go, oh, yeah, I remember when the tour was here for this, you know. It's 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 hard to pinpoint, but Poe's a special place for me. Yeah. I think with me it's tied up with either 
the landscape or the cuisine. I'll just be a bit further over into deep, you know, further east from Po in towns like Foix or Carcassonne or Castelnaudry, Limoux, because um, I love the cuisine. I love the Castellet, the, the red wines around there. They're robust, but really characterful and it's kind of hot down there. I feel quite at home down there. Although I do love the Pyrenees myself. I, I, I find them, I, I like forested mountains um, for some reason. So the Pyrenees particularly appeal to me. But I also love the southwest of France, like Perigueux and the Dordogne, just beautiful parts of the country. And you always eat very, very well there. We agree on the, the French Midi. I mean, I just love the Midi. I love the Carcassonne. Um, uh, there was a great, brilliant race back in the day called the Grand Prix of the Midi Libre that raced through there. It was absolutely one of my favorite races ever. Towns like Albi are just gorgeous towns that you wouldn't think of, but I'm always happy when the tour goes to Albi. It's it's like the little Toulouse, and it's a spectacular town, and it's often, like you said, hot down there. We're going to eat well. We're going to eat outside. We're going to see friends. These are the great times of the tour. Yeah, and which, to bring it back to 2023, just to finish off, I'm mostly looking forward to the tour being in Moulin. I may be the only person who thinks this, but for me, on this year's route... The place that I think I will be happiest on the Tour de France will be will be Moulin. Where are you most looking forward to going? Well, actually, um, we're going to be several days in Po. I'm pretty sure that the uh, Dax to Nogaro stage will actually drive to Po. Yeah, we'll drive to Po that night and stay there. And then we start in Po and we'll come back to Po after Laurence and then move on. So that, you know, I do get my, my days in Po, um, which is also great because it's um, dirty laundry days. Um, anytime you can stay in a place for two days, you get a chance to to do your laundry, which is crucial. Although it's a little early in the race here, okay? It's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's it's survival mentality, but it means a whole lot. Absolutely looking forward to this Puy de Dome stage. It's been thirty three years or thirty five years. I can't remember. I've wanted to go back up there, so I'm looking so forward to that. I love the Alps. I love the Pyrenees. But I, I really love it when we go to some town with a small, in a small village and cross the smaller parts, the quieter parts of France. Tour starts on Saturday. Any last thoughts before the race kicks off? We've done all we can. We've prepared as best we can. We're coming in as good a shape as we possibly can. And I want to sit back and, and watch and try to relax. I mean, it's, I get nervous before the tour, I'll be honest with you. It's day in and day out. It's grueling. you got to perform as a journalist and as a photographer every day, getting the shot getting the quotes, getting your stories. And it's, it's relentless. Um, so right now I'm here in Bilbao and uh, it's a nice town. It's now time for a late dinner, but fortunately in Spain, I know I can eat late, uh, unlike uh, say Denmark last year where I missed three out of five meals. So I'm gonna go take a walk around town, enjoy Bilbao and think about all the greatness that is to come. Great, we're gonna have a ton of stories going up every day on the Rouleau website, rouleau.cc, throughout the Tour de France. James is going to be out on the ground for the whole race. Um, we're going to have various journalists from Rouleau. I'm going to be going out for a few days. Rachel Jarry will be covering the race. And we've got a, a cast of freelance contributors as well. Go to rouleau.cc every day for your tour coverage. Don't forget that the Tours edition of Rouleau, it's on sale now. And you can subscribe at rouleau.cc slash subscribe and get 15% off with the code PODCAST15. James, thank you very much. Bon voyage, bonne route, bon courage pour le Tour de France. Thank you, Ed. And can't wait to see you in Moulin. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture.
Our latest edition, out now, is Rulo 120, the Tours issue. Rulo 120 is two magazines in one. We have two front covers, one for the Tour de France Homme and one for the Tour de France Femme, and each is packed with in-depth features about the races, their personalities and the culture around them. Rulo 120 features an exclusive interview and photo shoot with the double tour winner Tadej Pogacar. In a revealing chat with Rulo photojournalist James Start, Pogacar reflects on his journey through cycling and opens up about his relationship with the sport as a whole. Also in Rulo 120, exclusive interviews with five-time winner Miguel Indrain, French champion Audrey cordon rajot the fastest rising sprinter in the sport, Charlotte Coul, plus Jean Etienne and Aurora Amori, whose family has owned the Tour de France for generations. Also, the original voice of cycling, Phil Liggett. We also chat with Betsy King, the pioneering and irrepressible North American cyclist who raced in the Tour Féminin during the 1980s. And we've got features about the Puy de Dôme, the iconic mountain which returns to the men's tour for the first time since 1988, the Gave de Pau, which is the tour's spiritual river, the flowers of the Tour de France, and much, much more. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Rula 120 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rulo.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.